I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and open up to chapter 5 with me this morning. As you're making your way there, let me just reiterate the announcement that was shared earlier this morning that next Sunday is going to be a little different than usual. Uh, there's going to be, we, we have this tradition that sort of uh, predated COVID here at JCC that on the fifth Sunday, so four times a year, we have five Sundays in one month. We, we used to take that fifth Sunday to have some extra time to sing and to worship um, during the service and then to meet together for a meal uh, after the service in the fellowship hall. So we, uh, we had a fellowship meal back in the, I think, the end of October this year. And we were really encouraged by how so many of you came and, and stayed and shared that time uh, around a table with one another. And so we're hoping next Sunday, we've marked next Sunday on our calendars, and I apologize that we're getting the news out to you uh, last minute. But if you're able to come uh, next Sunday with a covered dish with something to share, um, both for you and for those who come um, to share the meal with us, that would be great. Fellowship will help us you know, set up that space. They could use help setting up the tables uh, and chairs. Um, but it's up to us to bring, to bring the meal. So um, that will be a special time next week. And unfortunately, I won't be here. Uh, I'll be with my family in Chicago um, at, a, at a funeral service for, for Katie's Graham. And we'll be celebrating her life next weekend there together. But I, I do want to encourage you to come next Sunday and, and to be part of that. Today we're continuing our look at Matthew's gospel, and we're, we're going to stay with Matthew and his witness to who Jesus is from now until uh, Easter at the start of April. And just a, a little bit of a recap where we've been so far. We picked up um, the gospel really in chapter 3 and chapter 4 these past two weeks. And we see that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is this great fulfillment. Jesus is the, the fullness of all of God's plans for human history coming in, into being. And we saw in chapter 3 how there was this great preparation, this great getting ready and anticipation of who Jesus was as he comes. We saw that in the ministry of John the Baptist coming with this message of repentance and baptism so that, so that the people would, would have space in their lives to welcome in this kingdom fullness that was coming. And then we saw in, in Jesus, as he enters, chooses on our behalf to enter those waters of repentance and baptism, that he joins himself to our humanity, but he also comes up from those waters as the, the true, the blessed, the beloved son of God who's going to show us what it looks like, not only to be a, a redeemed human being, but to be in perfect relationship with God the Father. And so last week, we, we looked at that true sonship of Jesus in Matthew 4, how Jesus was tested in his understanding of that sonship, and how he, he relied upon the pure and perfect love of his Father for him as a son, a true son, how he, he went out and began this ministry in the Galilee, right? proclaiming the fullness of that sonship, the fullness of that kingdom, and inviting disciples to begin to follow him. And then we saw at the very end of last week, right, Jesus beginning to visit all the different villages and cities of the Galilee, teaching about who God was in the synagogues, 
proclaiming the, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom to anyone who would hear it, and ministering healing to those who were oppressed, those who were sick, those who had disease, those who had great need, right, came to Jesus. And he poured out the, the fullness of this sonship into their lives. This morning, as we turn into chapter 5, we come to arguably one of the most important, one of the most significant teachings Jesus ever gave. And it's, it's as these crowds who he's been ministering to and healing and blessing and filling are gathering around him. There's these great, this great multitude that he calls them onto the, the sloping hills beside the Sea of Galilee. And he begins to teach them. And Matthew chapter 5, I think, begins by explaining to us who this kingdom is for. Who is it that Jesus has come to invite into the fullness of what God is about to do through him? Who belongs in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? And so with that question in mind, let me pray for us as we look at the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 today. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the true son of Adam, the true son of Abraham, who when he was called, was told that he would be blessed so that many would be blessed through him. Lord Jesus, we believe that in your perfect sonship, you have been filled up with all the fullness of God. But it was so that we might be blessed. We might receive from that fullness. Lord Jesus, as we hear your words of blessing this morning, May the words of my mouth as I teach and preach, may the movements and meditations of our hearts as we respond to these words be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name we pray these things. For you are our rock. You are our great redeemer. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In these first 12 verses of the sermon that Jesus gives here, he wants us to know about who it is that he has come to bless. Who is it? that Jesus has come to bless. Nearly everyone now refers back to this particular sermon as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we have come to refer to this kind of prologue or this opening section as the Beatitudes, as Pete shared this morning, as, as statements of blessing. Who is it that is blessed or happy or favored in the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, we actually get three chapters worth of material, which we're not going to cover all of this morning. We have chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are all given in this one address. And many would say this is kind of at the core of what Jesus is about the essence of his kingdom, the essence of his teaching. And because the the Sermon on the Mount is so significant, there has been an incredible amount of reflection and scholarship and commentary on what this sermon means. It was almost overwhelming as I began to prepare this week to figure out what what to think about this, this set of teachings One of the commentaries said, as they surveyed the history of the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount over over many centuries, there were at least 36 different interpretations of what Jesus is up to in this one sermon. 36 36 distinct sort of theological views that this commentator could, could point to in the history of Christian teaching. So there, there's a lot to think about and to make sense of here. And that probably means whatever you hear me say this morning, you should take with a grain of salt, right? You should take back to the scriptures yourself. Spend some time reading through this section of Matthew. And ask, how does what Jesus says here fit in with the whole gospel he preaches? How does it fit in with the way Jesus acts, what Jesus does, how he ministers to people? What is this kingdom message about? And so before we get to what Jesus actually says in these 12 verses today, I want to get to some of the details about the context that surrounds the what. I want to consider first the the when and also the where and finally the who before we get to the what. First, the, the when. And I'm not so much concerned about the the year or the day that Jesus gives this sermon, but more where this appears or when this appears in the context of Jesus' ministry. 
what's been happening just before this. And as I've already shared in, in chapters 3 and 4, there's this great sense of anticipation that precedes this sermon. There's this great sense of getting ready, of clearing out space, of joining the lives of Jesus' disciples to what God is about to do in his ministry. The when of this message is, is in the context of a repentant expectation of God's kingdom. Right? The crowds that followed John and now the crowds that are beginning to follow Jesus are hearing this message from Jesus' lips. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the way we said that, that, that we begin to practice that attitude or lifestyle of repentance is through the confession of our own sin, the acknowledgement of our own brokenness and need. But then also a, a recentering, a reorienting, a redirecting of our lives around the person of Jesus. And beginning to take those first steps of discipleship to follow him into a new way of being a human being. Or as we put it last week, of, of being true sons, true daughters in the kingdom of Jesus. And that's what precedes this great sermon. And so as people are beginning to repent, as people are beginning to prepare, as people are beginning to join their lives to following Jesus, Jesus gathers them on this mountainside. Which brings us to the question of where. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that when Jesus wanted to give this incredibly significant address, he didn't go indoors. He could have gone to one of the synagogues in Galilee. He could have gone to the temple in Jerusalem to make this proclamation if he wanted to. But instead, Jesus chooses the side of a mountain to give this sermon. And I think that's actually pretty important. Because if you think back into the story of God's people, into the story and history of Israel, there was one other time where God was beginning to do something incredible and new and creating a new people and a new kingdom in this thing called the Exodus. And at that moment, as God was, was preparing this, this new relationship with his people, he had Israel's greatest prophet, Moses, lead them to a mountainside in the wilderness, the wilderness of Sinai at that time. And there Moses relayed what this new relationship with God would be about, what this new covenant relationship would look like. Right? And that, that's come down to us in what, what we still hold up today as the Ten Commandments. And so to hear Jesus now goes up on a mountainside to teach. Having been proclaimed the true son of God, a prophet like no other prophet seen before. And so I think Matthew's signaling to us, could this be one not just like Moses, but even greater than Moses in authority, in teaching, in understanding, in power? The where of this sermon matters. And finally, I want us to think about the who. 
Namely, if you look at the first verse here, who is it that inspires Jesus to give this message? It says that, that Jesus looks out over the crowds that had come to him. Right? The, the last verses of chapter 4 tell us this, these crowds were from everywhere. They weren't just Jews. They were, they were Gentiles too. They were from all over this, this incredible region of, of Palestine and, and even beyond its borders. And they were not only people from far-flung places, but they were people that needed Jesus desperately. They came because they needed healing. They came because they were tormented by evil spirits. They came because they had nothing else. And Jesus was their only hope. And they had responded to who Jesus was and what he desired to offer them. And so it's looking out at these broken people that he has begun to minister to and to call unto himself, that Jesus decides to make a statement. Right? He wants to make a kingdom statement. And so calling his disciples, calling these crowds in closely to himself, Jesus doesn't start with ten kingdom commandments like Moses, but instead Jesus begins his mountaintop sermon with nine consecutive blessings. This is how Jesus says life in the kingdom begins, with blessing. Blessed, 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 nine times in a row. Jesus says he comes with an abundance of blessing. But it's important for us to look closely at who this abundance of blessing belongs to. Who gets to share in the kingdom Jesus wants to bring? And in this particular moment, if you survey the people Jesus is speaking to, they are a people with a blessed load of pain. People with a blessed load of problems. People with a blessed amount of poverty. The people Jesus is preaching to are people who have undeniable need. I'm indebted to the writings of Dale Bruner because he points out that in these first four Beatitudes, the first half, if you will, roughly half, the blessings that are extended are not for people that have anything to offer Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. They are a clarion call for the empty people of the world to come. The first four blessings are for those who are empty of spirit. Those who are emptied of joy. Those who have been emptied of their power and those who are empty of justice. And so at the start of what will be Jesus' greatest kingdom proclamation, he wants to know, he wants the crowds to know of his great love for the empty-handed. 
And he says to them, this kingdom that I've come to bring, all the, the fullness of God being poured out through me, it's for you first. I think we struggle to actually believe that. Most of us, whether we go to church or whether we live outside the walls of the church, I think we typically believe that blessing comes attached with some kind of expectation. Blessing follows virtue, or blessing follows hard work, or blessing follows moral performance of some kind. But not in the kingdom Jesus is bringing. Jesus says very clearly, blessed are the empty. Blessed are those who have, blessed are those who have nothing, blessed are those who have done nothing. Blessed are the empty who come. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, which is essentially an extended meditation on this sermon. He says, the Beatitudes are not instructions about how to be blessed. Nor are they indicating conditions that are especially pleasing to God or that are even good for human beings. Right? Look at the list described here in bold. We could hardly say that it's good to be poor. We could hardly say that it's good to feel brokenhearted or overwhelmed with grief. We can hardly say it's good to experience powerlessness or repeated injustice. In fact, the things Jesus is describing here are ugly, they're painful. They're not good realities, they're, they're broken realities. They're realities that, that come about in our world through, through sin and death and evil. And those who experience them have every right to feel angry or depressed or overwhelmed or exhausted. Some of us feel some of these emptinesses this morning, right now. This week, many of us have experienced mourning and grief. So why in the world does Jesus say these things are blessed? How can Jesus call them good? Dallas Willard goes on to say that what Jesus proclaims here is that it is precisely in spite of these things. And it is in the midst of these most deplorable conditions of our humanity. The hardest things we could ever endure as human beings. Even there, the rule of heaven is breaking in. It is, it is for these very people that the kingdom of heaven has come to change things and to release the presence of Jesus to us. It's for us when we come to the end of ourselves. It's for us when we come to the end of our plans. It's for us when we don't have any more strength to endure. When we don't have any other hope. Jesus says, my kingdom belongs to you. 
So often it's, it's in those moments that we first truly hear the voice of Jesus saying, come, belong to me. Be my son. Be my daughter. My kingdom is yours. And Jesus promises a comforting, an inheritance, a coming justice and righteousness that belong to those who would come to him. And so in these first four Beatitudes, I think we're hearing that the goodness of Jesus and his kingdom isn't one that celebrates our emptiness, but rejoices in the conviction that Jesus comes to join us to be with us in that place of emptiness and then to begin to fill up that space with himself, with his presence, with his kingdom. The last of those first four Beatitudes says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. There's a coming fulfillment. A few weeks ago, Bethany and Chris Value shared a story with me, a true story, that I have their permission to, to relay to you, that felt like an illustration of this tension. On their wedding day a few months ago, some of you were, were there out at the Davis farm, and they had a beautiful wedding celebration, and there was a, a wonderful brunch that followed. And as is so often the case at weddings, right, the bride and the groom, they're so busy greeting the guests and celebrating that they don't ever really sit down to eat themselves. And so as the, the reception was winding down and they were preparing to make their exit, the caterer came to Bethany and said, is there anything you want from the brunch to, to take with you? We have all this food left over. And she said, well, I, I don't really need a whole lot, but I'd love to have some of these berries that were set up. There were these huge bowls of fresh raspberries and blueberries and strawberries. And she said, could you just pack up a to-go box and, and put it in the car we're leaving in, hoping that might satisfy her hunger for the rest of the day. But when they got into the car and they were headed on their way out, eventually she started looking around and the berries weren't there, right? Somewhere in the, the, the rush to go, they, they were misplaced. And Bethany said she couldn't help but, but be a little disappointed to think about how good those berries were going to taste, right? And now they were, they were gone. She was hungry for something that wasn't there any longer. And of course, on her wedding day, that was a, it was a small thing, right? But some of us are, are hungry for bigger things, hungry for, for things that, that never come. Some of us have longings and aches for things, experience of, of deep disappointments. And there's not something there to immediately satisfy those longings. And what do we do with that? Right, Jesus says, blessed are those who long for, who hunger for, who thirst for, the kind of righteousness and fullness that will one day come in his kingdom. Well, the, the back half of that story is that several weeks after their wedding, Sarah and Ben invited them over to their home for a meal. 
You guys know the second half of this story? I think you must. Okay. And as they were eating together, Sarah handed Bethany a gift of homemade jam. And Bethany said, oh, that's great. Thanks. And, and Sarah said, after your wedding reception, there was all this food left over. And the caterers came to us and said, can you take some of this with you? And she said, I thought that maybe, you know, these berries would make good jam and that you might enjoy having some of it as a way to remember your wedding day. And Bethany just said, that was this most incredible gift, right? This thing that she had been so bummed out about in the moment came back again, right? In this, this sweeter, even more concentrated form, right? A jar of homemade jam. I think Jesus blesses us. He welcomes us in our empty state, in our hungry state, in our state of having nothing but longing. But his great desire, and I believe the intention of Jesus in that blessing, is to fill up that state. It might not be today. It might take years. It might take lifetimes before the fullness of that filling comes. But that's the promise of Jesus in these Beatitudes. Some of that, that filling is a, is a now but not yet. It's an anticipation that we have. But there's also a real sense, I think, that Jesus says the blessing and filling he desires to do is also for the here and for the now. And it's a, it's a blessing that he desires to minister through us as kingdom people. And that's what I think the back half, the second half of these blessings, these beatitudes are about. Look at verses 7 through 12. In some sense, I think these are the blessings that God pours out into us as his people, as a repentant people who are anticipating the wholeness, the fullness of the kingdom with our lives. Jesus begins to pour into us the gifts of that kingdom now so that we can pour them out into our world. There's a movement in these Beatitudes from emptiness to filling. And I think the Beatitudes have in view, they address what has gone missing in our world. Our world is merciless. Our world is corrupted by evil. Our world has no peace. It's divided against itself. Our world is not marked by the practice of righteousness and justice. And yet Jesus desires to bless and fill his kingdom people with these very things. Vessels of his beatitude. So Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who are so full of his mercy toward them that they are able to be emissaries and ambassadors of that mercy on the earth. Blessed are those who see and perceive who God is so clearly that they can reflect that beauty in an uncorrupted way to the world around us. Blessed are those who return the hatred of this world and instead become makers of peace, ministers of reconciliation. 
Blessed are those who become practitioners of righteousness and justice because they learn it from the, from the hands and feet of Jesus, ministering to them. Even in the face of great persecution. Jesus says, this too is part of my kingdom. It's part of, of who belongs in it. Jesus pours into us his good but his costly and sacrificial gifts so that they might fill up the great hunger of our world. A world that needs to be radically recentered around this kingdom because it's the kingdom that will come and will endure forever. And so I want you to, to think about two things as you go into the week ahead and maybe take some time to read these 12 verses slowly. Maybe, maybe each day read them. And I want you to think about two things. First, that the empty are blessed to come to Jesus. And maybe identify where are you empty? Where are you hearing in these Beatitudes a permission to just come as you are with nothing in your hands? No expectations, no requirements to have done anything for Jesus, but simply to know that he wants you to belong with him. You are blessed in your emptiness, Jesus says. Come to me. But then also consider how these verses might be speaking and inviting you to ask Jesus to pour his fullness into you. to ask how you might begin to be an agent of the kingdom to others, to be an agent of God's fullness and blessing. Jesus says as we practice these things, we grow into our identity as heirs of the kingdom, as true children of God, as those conformed to his image. Let me pray for us in that calling. Lord Jesus, the fullness of our lives in you begins and ends with your blessing, with your grace. Lord, would you pour out in a fresh way that invitation to come to you? Would you minister to us today where we are grieving? Would you minister to us where we have no more strength? Would you give us the kind of courage to be vulnerable and to be okay with our limitations, with our failed expectations? Because there's a greater kingdom you want to bring. It belongs to those who have empty hands. But so too, Jesus, would you fill us up as a people. Fill us up with the gifts of mercy and righteousness, purity, charity, hospitality, forbearance, patience with one another. Lord Jesus, come. Renew the face of the earth. Renew the hearts of your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.